0: This is Max.
1: This is Christina. This is Evan. This is Allie.
0: And you're listening to semi You haven't read the half of it.
1: This season, semi is going back to school to learn new things. To do that, we're talking with smart people who we hope can tell us how to better live our lives. And today we're talking with Pico Iyer about his book Autumn Light, We're hoping he can perhaps guide us through the inevitable decline of our parents and older relatives, the impermanence of everything, as well as our own aging and mortality.
2: I'm Pico Ayer. I'm a traveler for life. I've written 15 books over the last 30 years about roaming the globe. And I think this book, Autumn Light, was in part about how to bring hope and history into the same frame. There's this lovely a uh, poem by Seamus Heaney when Nelson Mandela uh, came out of prison. And he said something like, once in a lifetime, hope and history can rhyme. So hope is so bright and history is so true. How do we bring possibility and reality into the same sentence? Maybe that's what this book was about.
0: Well, thank you, Pico Iyer, for uh, talking to us about Autumn Light. I know that you're going to tell us all about what we need to know about mortality, about parents' death, about aging, about ping pong. Ping pong, pong, yes. Very important, ping pong. Um, So Autumn Light is a part memoir about you thinking about death because of Hiroko, your wife's father's death. Yes. Um, So you look at it through a lens of Japanese culture, through a lens of literally ping-pong, playing ping-pong with a a group of um, Japanese people who are a bit older than you through your experiences with your own mother in California. Um, So thank you for coming on and sharing about this book with us.
2: Of course, and you described it perfectly. I I wouldn't be able to do (laughs) as good a job as you just did.
0: Um, So I, I guess at one point, one of my favorite lines in the book is when you describe a bit of a health scare that Hiroko has as a dress rehearsal. Yes. And you say that it... the. The best types of dress rehearsals are the ones that sort of question, make you question everything about what came before that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe give a little bit of context and about that idea?
2: I can indeed. Um, So my wife does lots and lots of exercise and she was visiting in Santa Barbara, my Japanese wife, and I took her to a new yoga studio. And suddenly I got a call and they said, uh, you should come and collect your wife. She's sounding funny. And I thought, well, that's because her English isn't so great. <laughs> she sounds <laughs> funny, <laughs> uh, speaking a language not her own. So I went there, and she waved at me brightly, and just the same normal Hiroko I've known for 30 years. And I took her down to the car, and she said, what happened? And I said, oh, they were just worried about you, and they thought you were strange. So we got in the car, began driving, and she said, what happened? And I said, oh, well, as I was just saying, they were worried about you. And we drove them another block. What happened? She's so um, become a stuck record. And I said, well, remember when we were in Toronto last week? She said, Toronto? And she said, what, what am I doing here? And then she said, what happened? And I was really freaking out, because at first I thought it was a joke, but she, she literally couldn't communicate anymore. And she, only in her 50s, not such an old person. So I drove right to the side of the road, called up my doctor, and he, he was away for his lunch break, but the assistant said, get her to an emergency room, you have only one hour, it could be a stroke and they call it the golden hour, but you've got to get there. So I drove her as quickly as I could and we got in to see a doctor and he asked her, you know, the normal questions, what's your name, what day of the week it is, who's the president? And then he looked at me and he said, she's speaking gibberish, which is good news (laughs) because it means she's got transient global amnesia. And this comes to people out of the blue for no reason, maybe once in their lives, There's nothing we can do for it. Just stay next to her for 24 hours, and tomorrow she'll wake up and resume her life normally. She will never remember this day. Um, But for the person around, it's it's very freaky. Mm And it was funny that the name would be Transient Global Amnesia. All my friends pointed out it was the perfect disease for me to be in contact with because my whole life is about transience and globalism, if, if not amnesia. Um, but just before that, I'd watched the film from Canada's own Rachel McAdams about a newly married couple and she has a car crash and she can't even remember her husband. He has to woo her back. And so I had that terrifying sense of this person I've known for all my life. Our whole past is wiped out. And as you were saying about dress rehearsal... It was almost scarier than... It was a dress rehearsal for death and for the sense of my loved one no longer being around, but it was a dress rehearsal for the even scarier modern thing of somebody being dead while alive. Mm. And I'm right next to her, and she looks and sounds just the same as ever, but it's as if she doesn't know me, and we've never spent a minute together. And I thought, and maybe she will ne- I'll never be able to communicate to this person, even though I'll maybe the next 25 years next to her. And so um, it was this glimpse of uh, impermanence and death making a a teasing house call, um, but in an even scarier form.
0: Can you pick that out as like a singular moment? Or have you had a couple of these dress rehearsals, or is that sort of... The one dress rehearsal moment. That's
2: that a good had. question. So I've had near death experiences and not so many years ago I was in a car at thirteen thousand feet in Bolivia and the driver fell asleep at the wheel and drove right into the mountain and rolled the car. And he and my friend in the back seat in the hospital, I braced myself. It wasn't so bad, but I literally had my, my life flashing before me for a few seconds and I was thinking, Why does he want to kill me? Why and then Whoa. But I think part of the theme of this book is when I was a kid, I thought, oh, the really scary thing is dying. And as I've got older, I thought the really scary thing is having the people you love die. And there you are, alone in the world, um, still ostensibly going through your life, but with this huge absence. Um, And so, no, I've never had, my mother had a stroke a few years ago, um, but she was 84 at the time. And in, in that sense, I was prepared for it. So I've never had an experience of somebody my age, which doesn't seem so old suddenly vanishing from my consciousness, though in that case only for 24 hours.
0: It is one of the scariest sort of ideas to picture that watching the people you love die before you. And I I think at one point Hiroko sort of asks you to make sure that you don't die before her.
2: Isn't that the classic question of couples? You know, please, <laughs> uh, who wants to be the one left standing, as it were? Well, and again, uh, the question, you know, please don't die before me, um, is an interesting thing because the person is saying, I want to die before you, which is a kind of interesting register of, of love. And I'm really glad you you picked up that tr- transient global amnesia moment because I put it in only at the very end of the book because the rest of the book, as you know, is about my little neighbourhood in Japan and just everyday life. So it didn't really fit, but I thought thematically. It was like suddenly an arrival of, of death. Um, you know, there's, I, I, this is a digression but there's this great moment, one of my favorite plays is Shakespeare's Love Labour's Lost and you know, one of his early comedies It's full of wordplay and fun and young people falling in love and the very last scene they're all paired up at last and they're going off to um, get married and suddenly a messenger arrives in black and he says to the princess your father's dead and suddenly the comedy which is perfectly winding up, turns on its head into something different, which is one reason I'm so impressed by Shakespeare. And then she turns to her 23-year-old suitor and says, for one year you have to go to the hospitals of the world and raise wild laughter in the throat of death. And he says, wait, how can I raise wild laughter in the throat of death? And you can almost feel Shakespeare saying, my mission as a writer (laughs) is to face reality, which is the face of death, and yet make people laugh.
1: I was just saying, I think that it's a really interesting, um, formative way for you to have a dress rehearsal because it is very, and only you experienced some of the trauma of that. If Hiroko yes, doesn't yes, remember, yes. it's a perfect like analogy for if she were to die because she would not really be participating in whatever's happening with you. So do you, like how do you guys look at that that event because she has no memory, she can't remember what it felt like for you. What, how does that affect having this thing that you share, but you don't really share it?
2: Oh, that's beautifully said. Exactly, we don't share it. It's sort of the one moment in our 32 years (laughs) together, which is entirely solitary, lonely Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, we were just talking about it last week. And as you say, she has no memory of it. And somebody, and doctor who read the book, sent me an account from the New York Times just 10 days ago about this. And it was eerie because it was word for word the same. The person in the news story was saying, what happened, what happened? Mm. And then they had in the New York Times article, this is traumatic for the person next to the suffering person. The suffering person, as you say, has no memory of it and no experience of it. So um, that too was, was spooky, the sense of being in the same place, but only one of us having the experience.
1: And, and what do you, uh, one thing I was really struck by was when you said that autumn is a season that teaches us how to die, but it's also a season that teaches us how to prepare for watching those we love die. So what, like in helping Hiroko understand what happened to her, well, what role do we play in helping or watching or being a witness to our loved ones dying?
2: Gosh. Well, when you began that, I thought you <laughs> were going to say autumn uh, is uh, a preparation in learning how to die, and therefore it's a preparation in learning how to live. Mm. And I think my sense in this book was that the fact that we die and that most things are impermanent is exactly why we find our joy. Mm-hmm. I can't take it for granted I'll be alive tomorrow and that's why I'm going to really enjoy this warm afternoon in Toronto and and make the most of everything around me the chance to talk to the two of you who knows if I'll get that chance again mm-hmm. um so I was thinking that uh, the limits in our life are actually what give them uh, our sense of appreciation our delight in the wonder and beauty around us in terms of preparing our loved ones how to die um I don 't know there's anything we can do or that they need, uh, so her, you know, if my wife was sitting here right now, she would say her concern is me getting ill rather than her and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the main takeaway I would uh, seize upon is sort of cherishing the moment because moments don't go on forever, and I'm literally half a lifetime longer than you. so when I was let's say thirty years old, I would never want to think about that, and one shouldn't, but of course, as one moves towards the autumn of one's life, it's a useful thing to bear in mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, you talked about Shakespeare saying that uh, maybe what his project was raising laughter. Yes. Laughter. Well, thank you for sharing your dress rehearsal with us and being able to raise some uh, laughter. And I was not <laughs> to compare it to Shakespeare or anything. <laughs> you spent half the year in uh, Japan yes. and half the year in Santa Barbara. Yes. So you do get a sense of, I mean, I guess you live sort of in two worlds. Yes. That, right? In what ways is it different that the Japanese see death versus us maybe in the Western world? Can you maybe just a couple of
2: differences that you've noticed? I'm delighted you asked that. Um, And especially it's extreme with California, which is a land of endless summer, Mm -hmm. where there's no autumn. And I always think that California and the United States generally, of course, is based on the pursuit of happiness, whereas Japan is based on the Buddhist notion of the reality of suffering. And so I remember as a kid, when I was 18 years old, growing up in England, I was so excited to be in California, land of broad horizons, endless possibility, future tense. And it was terrific to be young there, but the, old, and the more years went on, I found it was very hard to be a grown-up in the perpetual future tense. And so I went to Japan when I was 29, partly because I thought I needed to be grounded in reality at this point. California's schooled me in possibility, but I need to deal with the facts of life, sort of. And I think, I think of Japan as a wise elder who's lived for 1400 years with warfare and fires and typhoons and tsunamis and learned how to make friends with reality which is not something I feel in California. Toronto is probably somewhere in the middle and Canada, which I think of as an old new world place, old world and new world. But um, coming from California to Japan is like a journey from I think (laughs) fantasy land or Hollywood to real life. Um, And it's interesting, you probably know because we've been working together, Right after this book, Autumn Light, I published a completely contradictory book on Japan called A Beginner's Guide to Japan. And the book, Autumn Light, was meant to be a way of discussing all the ways in Japan is very similar to Canada or California. Because at the human level, aging parents, children, scattering, turning leaves, that's universal. Mm -hmm. But the second book is all the ways in which Japan is very, very different from Um, the West and the world I grew up in, uh, and my other world, as you were saying, my two worlds. And so there's a lot there about how the Japanese, for example, pitch their expectations very low of life, which means they're pleasantly surprised by a lot. My Californian friends are always expecting to find the love of their life and the truth of life tomorrow, and they're usually disappointed. Uh, Or they're in the giddy state of having just discovered them, but I come back a month later and it's already dissolved. So...
1: That's so interesting, also because I think that for me, when I think of California, when I think of America, or think of the Western notions of like getting older, um, and and then California really specifically, and you're saying like this kind of perpetual summer, but there's also like a real distancing from aging. Like it's very famously like the land of plastic surgery and like the land of uh, trying to hold on to youth and um, beauty and like from a physical standpoint from a possible as you're saying like from a possibility standpoint um so one thing i was really struck by was like yeah that idea that japan really holds death as present always and we tend to really try to push it into the corners and like have it be something we don't deal with
2: I love that. Exactly. And so when I got to Japan, one of the first surprising things I learned is, in Japan, and maybe this applies to other old world cultures or East Asian cultures, You, as soon as you meet somebody, you ask her how old she is. And the older she is, the better. Right. And you're asking her how old she is because that tells you how much to defer to her, how deeply right. to bow to her. And if she's a 50-year-old lady and she says she's 60... She might well do that. She'll pretend to be even older than she is, because then you have to bow more deeply. So the older you are, the better you are in Japan and maybe in China. And as you said, in California, exactly the opposite. And I loved what you said just now about death being all around, because I think that's very much how I see Japan. And my friends here will sometimes say, isn't Japan crowded? Because 127 million people in a small physical space. And I don't think it's crowded in that way, because the Japanese people are very quiet and self-contained, as you Mm -hmm. probably saw when you went there. But it's crowded in a sense that the dead are never gone. And, and even inanimate objects are supposed to have souls. So actually things are very crowded in that sense. And my, my wife who you know, sells punk clothes in a department store and roars around on a motorbike, a very contemporary figure, but every morning she wakes up and she heats water to make tea for her father who died six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as she's concerned, her father is as much a presence in her life now, even though he's in the other world, than when he was down the street. Um, and that's kind of shocking, that death is just like another room in right. Japan, rather than another state of being. Uh, and for us, it's hard to process. Um,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: So when you started playing ping pong at the uh, local, <laughs> it's a club? It's yes, a it's, it's club? a fitness and club, yeah. And it seems like when you were describing it in the book, there seems to be about maybe 15 to 20 rotating members. Is yes, that? exactly. Did you know that when you joined this ping pong club that it was going to be this window into, I don't know, that, you know, when you get to hang out with uh,
2: people who are older than you, you, get to learn a lot? Yes. Did you know that, was that one of the things that was in your mind that... It wasn't in my mind. Um, And I didn't realize what a blessing it was to play games of ping pong with my elderly neighbors until I did it. So I've lived in Japan for 32 years on a tourist visa because I've never really engaged much with Japan. I go there, I sit at my desk. It's a great place to write because I don't speak the language even. But I was very removed from Japan. So it's the first time I've been in a Japanese society, as it were, in the ping pong club. So that itself is an advantage. And I learned these important lessons. Like in Japan, you try really, really, really hard, but you never want to win. (laughs) It's so different from what we're used to. And then, as you say, the added bonus of slowly realizing that all the people around me, they'd grown up, they were born in the late 1930s. They grew up during the war, seven years of harrowing occupation. Then they joined Mitsubishi and Toyota. Sony, they made what we used to call the Japanese miracle. But the whole history of modern Japan is in these old folks. Um, and I get to learn about it. And because I'm the only foreigner in this group of probably about 30 in all, um, I'm kind of a novelty item. My, my wife kids me that I'm a sort of Justin Bieber figure, because <laughs> I'm younger than all of them. I'm the only foreigner. And a sort of source of kind of like an honorary mascot in this group. When was the last time you played? Well, them. I've been missing Japan because I've been away from Japan for a while, but I'll be back next month and I'll be there three times a week playing.
0: Are you confident of, with how you'll... Uh... I'm
2: confident of losing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if my wife were here, she could point out how some of these people look like they can barely walk. They're 83, 84 years old. Get them behind a ping pong table there and they're killers. So really, really good. Most of them learnt as kids, so 75 years ago. And ping pong is that nice game which is, is both physical and mental. But they can certainly wheel the paddle very dexterously still and oh go ahead
1: no I was just going to say as someone who I love playing ping pong and I was really one thing I loved that you wrote in your book was that we've all played for 30 years but none of us are getting any better
2: yes yes
1: so there's something more it's not about winning it's not about winning and it's not about getting better yes it's about something else
2: and I guess we incrementally get a little bit better but we're at the same time getting older right so so it levels out yes which is a kind of metaphor for something Um, and of course we're talking about ping pong I think just down the street from SPIN the great ping pong club here in I Toronto I was going to say if
1: you had more time we could bring you to the office and then you could give me also a lesson in ping pong because we have a table there which we've been trying to train ourselves to beat the bankers finally in our annual ping pong tournament
2: oh what a cool office um, yeah. I, no I could probably train you only in learning how not to win the great Japanese skill so you know the funny thing there also when I joined this club was to find most of our games are best of two Yeah. <laughs> so there's no winner there's no win. There's no and then win. we switch partners <laughs> every five minutes so if you do happen to lose you're going to win six minutes later um, classically Japanese
1: I love that so much
2: and, and it's genuinely true so let's say 15 of us gather we play really intense games for an hour but at the end of the hour everyone's in an equal state of happiness because right. none of us are really aware of who's won or lost overall so we all come out delighted and <clears throat> of course that's how the whole of Japanese society works it's right. not good for individualistic goals or ambitions but it's great for collective harmony it's like playing in an orchestra
0: right i guess one dynamic of being able to learn from a group of people who are older than you is that um there's a bit of loss that goes on within the ping pong group too right yes um people get sick people get have other projects that come up people pass away yes um were you prepared for that too? Or was that something that came to a surprise? Did you know that that was something you'd have to let, deal with or handle?
2: I didn't know that. And I, of course, I'd, most of all, I didn't know I would get so attached to my friends. So I've been playing with them for 15 years now. I speak very lam- limited um Japanese with the exception of one person they speak no English but I feel I know them better than I know some of my closest friends in England or the US and and therefore as you say those sudden losses um, really yeah really hit one hard who are you most looking forward to playing with when you get back <laughs> Well, they, a lot they, of they these, won't hear it so <laughs> no a lot of these old guys are really really good yeah so to get, get one point against them feels like a victory um, and they're yeah you know, diving across the, the floor and they're p- pretty acrobatic. Now it must be said in my defence, these guys are retired, so they're full-time ping pong aficionados. <laughs> so they literally play four hours a day every day of the week. Wow.
1: That is um, such a dream. I yeah. can't wait. I can't wait to be retired. So and, I
0: can... I, and I'll ask you your age and say a high number and I'll...
1: And then I'll be like, bow deeper. <laughs> I'll be proud.
0: Can I read a short section from your book to you? Uh, yes. Does that make you feel awkward, people?
2: No, it makes me feel delighted.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, so this is um, a scene where you'd met someone on the street who is from your ping pong group who you hadn't seen in a while. Um, you weren't sure about her situation. Uh, I'll, I'll read it and then we can talk about it. When I came back from the health club, not many days on, Hiroko told me that the Bodhisattva had looked in on us and in fact drunk tea with Hiroko, who she'd taken to be a nurse. Uh, So in this case, the Bodhisattva is one of the older women members of the ping pong group. And that's the nickname you've given her. She came to say goodbye, Hiroko went on. And I realized I hadn't heard in my friend's sentences. So happy not to live in the illusion of knowledge. I'd missed the most important fact of all. So, I guess one question, one curious question. Um, In your in your work and in your talks, you talk about sort of this um, real pleasure or real value in not knowing and maybe doubting, doubting and being a bit of a uh, skeptic. I don't know, skeptic maybe is too harsh a word, but sort of
2: agnostic. Yeah, (laughs) being
0: able to discover and being able to (laughs) uncover and being able to feel wonder. But then also, on the other hand, apart uh, parts in the book you're like, I didn't know this about this person mm-hmm. in my ping pong yeah. group and I, I wish I'd known this. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit?
2: So perceptively, I mean, you're the first person to pick up on that little moment, but you're absolutely right. So one of the things I delight about in the ping pong club is partly because they're Japanese, I don't speak much Japanese, I don't know the salary of this guy, if they're high in society, if they're low in society, where they're educated, none of that stuff. I just know, Do they really want to win? If there's a free table, are they going to play? All that kind of stuff. And I like to be liberated because I think if I were playing ping pong in California, I would know, oh, this guy works for McKinsey. This guy's on his third divorce, whatever. And that would pollute my mind in some ways. There's a freedom in not knowing that. But at that moment, I suddenly thought "There's there's a beauty in not knowing which I celebrate, but there's a real danger in not knowing because I because I don't speak Japanese didn't know that this woman who looked quite healthy was actually diagnosed with cancer and only had a few weeks to live and so you know I think this book is a lot about being humbled and and about being reminded of all the things that I I rejoice in actually have not so good qualities um, and also the fact I, I live in Japan on a tourist visa, which is a wonderful thing for me but it raises difficult questions. Where's my sense of responsibility? Am I going to be a tourist for life? Um, But but yes, it it reminded me that I'm sort of living in a romantic illusion. And I like that fact. But when reality makes a house call, I'm suddenly taken aback because uh, I didn't know enough about the circumstances of the people around me.
1: And on this theme of accountability, um, there's a part in the book where Hiroko goes to the Dalai Lama and she says that she worries about her aging parents and his answer is just spend time with them. Mm, mm. And uh, it's very, it seems obvious. And he tells her that karma is action, right? Mm. Karma is not Do You yes. can live it. Um, so how do we make peace with that from your point of view as a writer, where how much action can you... Partake in when you are also relegated to the role of observer?
2: Hmm. I think writing is action. Yes. And I think writing is the conversion of a reflection into action. So, most everybody listening to this, everybody around us in Toronto is having lots of experiences, emotions, encounters today. But the writer is the person who's in the rare position of going back and making something concrete out of that to send back out into the world and having a say back and so i like your picking up on the dalai lama quote because most of us think oh karma's kind of um like a moral bank account that we have but he always stresses you know no it's about making good karma right now and therefore good action tomorrow rather than the bad actions of yesterday I think the beauty of the writer's life is that it's about action. And Mm -hmm. I remember, I sort of allude to it in the book a little, but at one point I was in my family home in California, and there was a forest fire, and three hours later, everything in the house, everything in my life was gone. Nothing left in the world. Mm -hmm. And I was stuck in the middle of that fire for three hours, but finally a fire truck came up, and it led me back down into the city, and I went to a friend's house. And the very first thing I did at 11 o'clock that night, having lost everything I own in the world was to sit down and write about it. And I thought, well, I'm so glad I'm a writer because it's a reminder I'm not powerless and I can have my say back. And although the world has stripped me of all my material possessions, I still have my thoughts and my feelings. And as a writer, I can actually engage in a dialogue with the fate rather than just saying, oh no, I've had such bad luck to lose everything.
1: I'm glad you bring that up because that's the next passage that we wanted to read
2: amazing you
0: want to you want to read it I was gonna read it do you want to read it no read it and I have something to say right after you read it okay
1: Max has something to say (laughs) life is itself is a burning house and soon that body you're holding will be bones that face and that so moves you a grinning skull the main temple in Nara has burned and come back and burned and come back three times over the centuries the imperial compound covering a sixth of all of Kyoto has been rebuilt fourteen times What do we have to hold on to? Only the certainty that nothing will go according to design. Our hopes are newly built wooden houses, sturdy until someone drops a cigarette or match. As I climbed all the way up to our house, the day after everything in our lives was reduced to rubble, I saw that everything could be replaced. Furniture, clothes, books, was by definition worthless. The only things that mattered were the things that were gone forever.
0: I guess I loved how you said, earlier, so we were talking about action versus inaction, hmm. and you said you, you were stuck in a fire for three hours. Hmm. So some, being stuck and being able to move are th- sort of dynamics that I've been thinking about a lot recently, you know, places in my life where I was felt stuck and wasn't able to hmm. move forward. Hmm. Is, that, is that any way related to what you might have felt after you lost all your possessions? Because you describe a sort of new feeling or a new way of seeing after that happened to you.
2: Yes. So certainly I would say losing everything in a fire was a liberation as well as a loss. And as you're saying, it, it freed me from certain habits to which I was wed. For example, as a writer, I I tend to work much too much from notes. And the day after the fire, I called up my editor um, and I said, I'm really sorry, that book I promised you on Cuba, I'm not going to be able to deliver um, because I've lost all my notes. for I've accumulated maybe 800 pages of notes. And he's a very kind man, so he commiserated. But then he said, actually, losing all those notes may be the best thing that would happen to you as a writer, because now you're going to have to write from memory and imagination and the heart and deeper places. And in fact, because I was possessed by Cuba but didn't have any notes, I wrote a novel, which I probably never would have done had I not lost all my notes in that fire. I always feel that the events in our life are less important than the use we make of them or what we do with those events. And so in that far, 500, maybe 1,000 people lost their houses. And some really found it difficult to start up again. And others thought, well, maybe this is a chance to do something new. I probably moved to Japan more easily because I'd lost my family home in California. So... So yes, I mean, when we're stuck, we assume we need to do something to get out of that stuckness. But often it's just circumstance that propels us out. And even a bad circumstance can be a good thing in those ways. I'm really happy you read that passage because it actually sounded beautiful to listen to. And uh, I'd forgotten I'd written all of that. But I think that's kind (laughs) of the core of the book. And it it was such a natural... You know, there I was talking of fire and you had right there a passage on fire. Very deft.
1: (laughs) Well, what I wanted to talk to you about is it's this sense of attachment things you are attached to Mm. um, but also forgetting you talk Mm. a lot about forgetting and one of the things that you admire about your wife is her ability to kind of very quickly shed the burdens of the past and just like continue going forward and I've been thinking about forgetting from the point of view of when we we were talking about Gia Tolentino's book and in this digital age where things are not programmed to forget we're not able to escape our past in the same way. Our pasts are very concrete. Our pasts can be um, Do-
0: documented sh- documented, and, and then
1: brought back to us yes. a- out of context. And you know, if you forgot writing this passage, then I'm sure you forgot what you said <laughs> 30 years ago, something. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of forgetting and and getting rid of these attachments?
2: Such a great um, observation. So just 10 days, days ago, I took my wife to Berlin for the first time. And she's a very upbeat, bright-eyed character, but she was really weighed down because, of course, in Berlin, everything that a visitor sees is a memorial to the past, and right. a remi- an expression of guilt and a reminder of death. And and she was getting more and more heavy uh, the longer we were in berlin and as we talked to other people they said well it's important to reckon with the past and she said no i'm actually japanese (laughs) so we went through that terrible wartime past also but we can't change that the only thing we can change is tomorrow it goes back to what you and i were saying about the dalai lama so that's why we want to concentrate on the future because that's something that's within our control to some degree and where we can act creatively the past has happened and all the apologies and guilt in the world is not going to change the past or bring back the people who are lost there so it's a very interesting response to and a different way of thinking about mm-hmm. the past as you say and a way of thinking that forgetting as you said is a is a liberation and being too way down with the past prevents us from acting in the right now mm. um, and i think it's that very pragmatic sense i mentioned as you know in one scene traveling with the Dalai Lama in Japan to an area that's been st- laid waste by the tsunami where mm-hmm. 3,000 people have died in a single village. And he, s- he says to the people who are sobbing there, please don't mourn the past because there's nothing you can do. Use this as a way to rebuild your community and get fresh energy and direction for the future. Um, so again, almost, if not forgetting, not dwelling on the past too much. Right. The counterpointing my wife in this book is uh, my wife's brother who s- went to study first in Kansas and then in Switzerland as a Jungian psychologist. And after many, many years of study abroad, came back to Japan. And maybe as his psychological practice had suggested to him wrote long letters to his parents and his sister about everything they'd done wrong Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think there's a lot that Jung Jungian psychology has to offer to all of us but in the Japanese context I thought well Jung and Buddha are pushing in the opposite direction because the Buddha famously said if there's an arrow sticking out of your flesh just don't quibble about the arrow. Don't worry where it came from. Don't ask what kind of arrow it is. Just pull it out and Mm -hmm. move on. Mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, Jung and Freud and our tradition is much more about delving deep into the past to find the Who shot that
1: arrow? What is that arrow made of? Exactly. Why did you shoot me there?
2: Uh, And why, yes, why are our (laughs) parents responsible for this arrow that's still, um, yes.
1: I love that you said, though, in the book as well, He wrote those letters, and like, which is what something that all therapists would recommend to do. But then he did the thing that they don't recommend to do, which is he sent it. That's not the thing. (laughs) That's not part of the practice of what you're meant to do.
2: Yes, and I and I guess I wasn't suggesting that he's wrong because I'm not in a position to know about this, and I've never met my brother-in-law. But I did think that in the context of Japan and where we're talking about forgetting, it was um, kind of a Western response to this very Mm -hmm. Eastern Mm -hmm. culture, and maybe it didn't quite translate.
1: So following in Max's desire for uh, wisdom and, <laughs> and guidance, um, we are going to ask you, we, we like to do things together um, as a group mm-hmm. to keep us coalesced as a group. Um, what sort of project or exercise could you recommend to us after, now that we've all read your book? Um, maybe would be something that we could try to do as a group and something our listeners could try to do that would help us engage with the themes of death, aging, impermanence. could be anything like a walk, playing some ping pong. So I don't <laughs> want to suggest too many things.
2: Well, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, and especially embarrassed to say to people as young as you. So, <laughs> And also, it's not original to me. But a part of me thinks occasionally there's a virtue in imagining you've just been told you have 90 days to live. Mm-hmm. And the good news about that is... It instantly focuses your priorities. You instantly think, well, actually, maybe I don't have to spend today reading about Donald Trump's tweets and reading 160 responses to Donald Trump's tweets. Maybe I can be with my best friend. Maybe I can play ping pong. Maybe I can take a walk Mm -hmm. around this radiant day. And the the good news about this, as I say, is probably at the end of 90 days, you're fine because it's just a thought experiment and and you can keep on going and actually you're glad oh actually i've got many more days than than i might have imagined um but i think it's a good thing because these days we have so much stuff coming in on us i think the trivial and the essential get all mixed up together and we lose the sense of our priorities and then four years pass and somebody says, you know, what have you been doing? Oh, well, I've been responding to emails. But have you seen your best friend? Have you listened to the group you really love? Have you been to the place? Oh, no, actually, I haven't had time. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, before you know it, you're getting quite old. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why did I spend all my time doing what I didn't want to do when there are these things nearby that I could have cherished?
1: So create kind of a mental autumn for ourselves. Beautiful. A exactly. Sense of, a yes. sense of this Im- is all going away.
2: Quite imagine soon. you have a deadline. And that rem- moves you to think of what are your lifelines. If we wanted to do, if we wanted to
0: read a work that has similar themes as uh, Autumn Light, what book would you recommend to us for, for more extended reading?
2: Well, the best book ever written by a foreigner in Japan is called The Inland Sea. It came out about 50 years ago. It's a travel book by somebody called Donald Ritchie. He lived in Japan as an American for 66 years, from 1947, the occupation, to his death in 2013. And he had the gift of being a perfect foreigner, which is he was very sympathetic to the Japanese, but he never kidded himself he was one of them. And so it's a, it's an elegiac book, which is why it goes with mine. And it's about these forgotten fishermen's villages around Japan. But it's a beautiful book by a graceful writer who's too often forgotten. And more than my book, I would say it's the perfect introduction to anyone going to Japan for the first time. Oh, awesome. I awesome pick.
1: Read it and then go back. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And in the same kind of vein of a question, what is is there music that you could recommend to keep us in the same and thought space and vibe as Autumn Light?
2: There is. And you probably know because you talk to lots of writers, we always have um, little secrets tucked into our books. (laughs) And one of my secrets is the book is dedicated to Jikan, which means many, many different things. But one of the things it means is it's the monastic name of Canada's own Leonard Cohen, whom I got to know quite well. And uh, originally when I wrote this book, it was nearly all about Leonard Cohen and his songs. So of course, because most of his songs are about Facing impermanence and death. So, of all the Leonard Cohen songs, one of my favorite in the last eighteen years has been "Alexandra Leaving." So, I would say his song "Alexandra Leaving," um, which is all about Alexandra leaving and then Alexandra lost, uh, would be the perfect accompaniment to "Autumn Light." That's
1: wonderful.
0: I, I love how, uh, in the book, uh, you listen to it, but Hiroko doesn't can't stand it. Oh, runs out <laughs> because it sounds too
2: much like the Buddhist chanting that she grew up with. Yeah, and
0: I have. So, for me, I love. The, the one sort of singer that me and my girlfriend sort of disagree on, or have a similar relationship to, I love Sade and my girlfriend doesn't understand her music or- Oh, she's yeah, just
2: got a seductive voice. I know, it's very, it's, it's, it's sort of tension for it. I think men might respond more happily to that.
0: <laughs> if um, people wanna uh, keep on living in this mental autumn, Yes. What movie or TV show Would be a good way to wallow. To wallow. wallow,
2: (laughs) (laughs) To rejoice in. (laughs) And I I think I know what you're going to pick. I think you do. So I mean, again, one of the secret presences in this book is the Japanese film director Yasujiro Ozu from the 1950s. His most famous film, which I mention in the book, is Tokyo Story. But the one that I really um, most moves me is called Late Spring. And from the title of this book onwards, Autumn Light, to the last page, it's meant almost to be an Ozu movie in prose form. And the two things that I'll mention about Ozu that I love. First, in many of his films, there'll be the sound of a festival out in the street, even as somebody is weeping in the room next door. Mm. So I wanted to get exactly that. Uh, As you said, you love Radiance and Melancholy. That seems to me what Japan's all about, and he catches it in his films. The other thing I love about his films, which applies to this book, is it looks like nothing is happening in them. Um, And a father's just saying, oh, really? And a neighbor is kind of looking in and saying hello. And a train is wishing past. And you think, this is just daily life. Nothing important happening. And then you realize the father's saying, oh, really? means he hasn't registered that his daughter is squandering her life looking after him instead of making a life of her own. And you realize the neighbor is looking in on him to remind him, you better give your daughter a freedom and, you know, a chance to live. And the train is taking the son off to, and maybe they'll never see him again. So really everything is happening, but between the lines in that very quiet way, which is, I think, the nature of most of our lives, but it's certainly true in Japan. And Ozu, I just ran across this quote, 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 Ozu said, I want people to feel without drama. So no big events, no bull type, but still it's the tiny stuff in life that really breaks our heart and makes us uh, exalted. And that's what I was trying to get in this book just about walking around an everyday neighborhood.
0: There's a, there's a, a time in the book where you say that uh, Tokyo Story is like a quiet leer. Which, oh yes, which is um, funny because that seems like that passage was for me. Because the, when I think about <laughs> my parents and me and where I should be going and where I should be leaving or staying with them, those are sort of the two pieces of those are the two works I think about very much: Tokyo Story and Lear.
2: Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when you wrote that, that was for me.
2: And Lear is all storm and the heath and raging, and Tokyo Story is so quiet. Yeah. Right? So. You love yeah. Tokyo Story already. Yeah, there's one, the one image and the one line I remember from the movie. I don't
0: remember too, like too too much, but it's the one where I think the grandmother's watching the young son playing with maybe uh, weeds or flowers in mm-hmm. a field, mm-hmm. and she's just wondering and says aloud, "I wonder what you're going to be when you grow up." Wow. And that's just I think about that scene a lot. But.
2: Ah I'm really glad that you you're thinking about Tokyo Story long long before this book though
0: Yeah it's been I seen it maybe 15 years ago I haven't seen it since and I that I still think about it every now and then.
2: Usually, so I first saw that movie when I was probably your age, and it was much too slow. I was really impatient. <laughs> What's with this? Nothing's going on. It took me a while to mature into it, but I, you, you're you obviously more mature than I was. Told you. Told you, Christina. Max is
1: also older than you think he is, perhaps.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep that off. <laughs> well, no. Okay. We, can, we can do that. No, like...
1: we, we tell. We tell everyone
0: yeah. that. Yeah, that yeah. Now old, we have to be open old. with our ages, right? We have to be open with us. Uh, I've oh, never, I've never yeah, never yes.
1: I've never hidden my age. You, you don't hide yours either. Yeah, I don't
2: hide my, no. my 38 because years. Because we have to no. bow even more deeply, as you were saying before. I
1: know, and I will always have to have deference to Maxwell and I. <laughs> um, Pico, thank you so much for joining us. It's so much with fun.
2: Us. I'm really thrilled that you invited me. Thank you.